Welcome to Transformative Talk, Critical Conversations for Teachers. I'm Dr. Zid Haddad, a professor of instruction within the Department of Interdisciplinary Learning and Teaching at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I teach undergraduate and graduate courses in curriculum and instruction. In short, I teach teachers how to teach and save lives through the use of critical multicultural education as an approach to teaching and learning. Our podcast is produced by a different group of graduate students each week, giving them an opportunity to talk about what they're reading in my class, what they experience in the field, and how that impacts their own lives and understandings. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast from wherever you're listening. Also, you can ask us questions and engage with us further using the Anchor.fm website or the Anchor.fm app on your phone. You can submit questions and you can also send us voice messages. And remember, please share our podcast on all your socials so that we can build our audience. Thanks for listening, and here's today's episode. Hello, and welcome to Transformative Talk. I am one of your podcast hosts, Ellie G. Rodriguez. In this episode, we are going to explore Chicana feminist epistemology, or Chicana feminist knowledge production and methodologies. This week, myself and my co-host, Kat and Linda, interviewed two very important people that embody and encourage Chicana feminist epistemology. We chose to interview someone who researches and teaches these theories in academia, and also an artist, writer, and former educator who expresses herself creatively using Chicana feminist epistemology principles. This was an amazing experience for us, as our conversations with our interviewees were very inspiring, thought-provoking, and authentically beautiful. And hello, Transformative Talk listeners. It's me, Dr. Haddad. For the first time in podcast history, I'm making a guest appearance because I'm particularly interested in the women that were interviewed for this episode. Because our podcast team this week had such fulfilling experience producing the episode, I didn't want to cut any of the content. Hence, I'm here with Ellie to introduce our interviews and make it into two episodes for you. In the first episode, we will share an interview with Dr. Alejandra Elenes, a professor and chair of the Department of Race, Ethnicity, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I was first introduced to Dr. Elenis's writing a couple years ago when one of my doctoral students was completing her teaching internship in my Critical Perspectives course. That semester, we added the content about Chicana feminist epistemology, and Dr. Elenis' piece was about Nepantla and spiritual activism was added to our course. Fast forward to last year when the university established the new department, uh, and Dr. Elenis was hired to join the department as its inaugural chair. I was starstruck when I heard about her arrival as a newish kind of professor you learn about others in academia and you read their work in, in your classes, but this was the first time I was ever able to say, uh, let's read this article in class. And if you have any questions, just go ask the author. She's right over there in our department. We will be right back with the interviews after the break. Stay tuned. Linda, did you want to? Yeah. Okay, so, well, I guess we should introduce ourselves to Dr. Elenis too, right? Mm-hmm. That would be great. <laughs> I don't think you and I have even ever met in person, right? No, not even via Zoom. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm Ellie Gonzalez Rodriguez, um, and uh, I'm in the Master's Curriculum and Instruction Program at UTSA. So um, I'll also be earning my teacher certification for fourth through eighth grade in English and Social Studies. Um, you know, once the program's over as well. And uh, I'm also the uh, graduate assistant for Mexican-American studies um, with Dr. Saldana. And that's how I uh, know of Dr. Elenis. Exactly, right. Mm -hmm. But it's really nice to meet you in person, (laughs) at least soon. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, I'm Catherine Solis, and I'm also in the CNI program. I'm currently a first grade teacher, um, so I'm loving that, but I would love to, you know, make the next step and possibly become a professor, so nice. I'm a little starstruck and idolizing you right now. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> it's because we read one of your articles for class this week. <laughs> oh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, I'm Linda Martinez. I'm, um, I'm also in the same program as they are. And um, right now I'm a science teacher for uh, ninth grade. Um, and um, I don't know, I'm still kind of wondering where my path is trying to lead me. Um, I don't think I wanna be a science teacher forever, but um, I don't exactly know what I wanna do. So I joined the program, the, the curriculum instruction to see if I can figure that out a little. Um, so yeah, glad to have you here. Okay. Uh, but first, we, we want to thank you for joining us. Um, and also, if you could introduce yourself to us, please. Okay, yeah. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And my name is Alejandra Lenes, and uh, I'm the chair of the Department of Race, Ethnicity, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, REGS. And I just joined UTSA uh, since last August. So I'm completing my first year at UTSA. And um, so I got my PhD uh, in curriculum and instruction from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But most of my work, even as when I was studying, focused on cultural studies and education. And uh, so my research has focused on borderland theories, um, Chicana feminist pedagogies and epistemologies, and um, as well as spirituality and social justice. Uh, before joining UTSA, uh, I have spent my whole academic career at Arizona State University. Uh, I was hired there to be a women's studies faculty. So most of my, all my education career, uh, my academic career has been in women's studies and ethnic studies and not, uh, this is actually the first time I'm housed in a college of education, even though my background is, is in education. And currently my research projects have led me towards history. Uh, I love history. And uh, if I had to do everything again, I would actually study history. Uh, so I've been doing, a, uh, I have two major projects looking at the, um, the history of Chicanas winning women's studies. Uh, and then I'm doing some oral histories with a local activist um, from here from San Antonio. Uh, Mario Compeán, who I met when I was in Wisconsin, and he was leading um, the efforts to get Chicano studies uh, at Wisconsin. So we're um, together here. And uh, so, and that's why I came to UTSA, because um, this gave me an opportunity to bring all my interests together. And also, of course, help um, lead a department that is interdisciplinary and brings together ethnic studies and women's studies. Ah, okay, awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, um, one of our questions is, um, what are the components of your own Chicana feminist uh, epistemology? Um, since we know that everyone has their own um, based on who they are and where they grew up and other experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, yeah, like me personally, how I, I you know, from, uh, out of my own subject position history, 
uh, I'll start with that and then I'll branch into more academic part of it. So I, I come from a bilingual, um, bicultural, biracial, transnational family. And I grew up in Monterrey, Mexico. Uh, so my father was Mexican and my mother was white uh, from Milwaukee. And so I did a lot of my formative growing up in Mexico, but always bridging uh, English and Spanish, US culture and Mexican culture. That I, that's always been part of what I am. But, but I always have much more affinity to my Mexican culture. So when I came to the United States, which was to Milwaukee, and, uh, and I um, was applying for graduate school at UW-Madison is when I started to interact with Chicano, uh, Chicanas and Chicanos. I, I realized I had a lot of affinity in terms that uh, this was a, gr uh, a group of people that was bridging different cultures. So when I first, also the first time I read Borderlands, I said, I really identified with uh, uh, all my life, I have been told that I have to choose one over the other, or that I was 50% of this, 50% of that, and I never felt that that it had to be that way. Um, so uh, it really helped me to articulate uh, a, a cultural identity that bridged many different cultures, that, that languages that I would, and religion, and there was always a mixture of things. So. Uh, the 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 Gloria Saldua's ideas of mestiza consciousness and uh, of juggling different cultures and from that creating something new uh, and kind of creating your own through your own feminist architecture, building different ways of being that we didn't have to just get stuck with uh, and accept the the narrow categories that they gave us, but understanding that cultural identities are always in flux, always changing. And that, that really helped me a lot to either understand my place in the world and how I could make sense of it, but also to think about uh, that we needed to change and transform how we think education in which, in which we do, do not do violence to people's different forms of, of being, that when you imposing one particular way of being, and they tell you that where you come from is wrong, that's uh, that's a, that, that's a form of violence to our communities, to our children, to ourselves. And I started to think about how can we rethink uh, how we how we do education in, in ways that we're going to honor. Uh, people. Uh, so to me, that is for me where I develop, right? If you, and I don't know if you're going to go to that question or not, but it, then, so if I think about what would be Chicana feminist epistemologies, and I would use that in plural, uh, because if we're talking about constructing your knowledge from your who you are, where you come from, then we're going to find very different, different perspectives within certain parameters, right? So 
one of the things that is fundamental in thinking about uh, Chicana feminist epistemologies is how we construct knowledge based on our own experiences uh, and also histories of uh, colonization, uh, activism, uh, social change, um, and, the, and the ways in which um, the, the community knowledge and, and historical memory that that we learn so we learn a lot from our families in not just necessarily we learn a lot from school not to say but what are the things that we learn from our families from our ancestors uh and how that helps us re understand the world and from there we we start to construct our ways of of knowledge well, that's a really amazing perspective. Um, you know, as a first grade teacher, they they always tell us to differentiate our curriculum. So like different ways how and how students learn. So we can differentiate, you know, how we teach addition and reading strategies, but they don't ever emphasize the need to differentiate between our students' cultures and their beliefs. And that goes back to, you know, the basic foundation of funds of knowledge. Um, you know, people like to throw that those words around, but I don't think people understand that there's a deeper meaning to that. It goes far beyond just teacher-parent communication, but actually bringing their cultures into the classroom and making them feel, you know, that they have a purpose and that their life has meaning. Um, so I really appreciate that perspective from you, um, but especially for my girls. My girls are just like a salad bowl of cultures and uh, national and like backgrounds and things like that. Um, there, I have mixed girls as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I always try to tell them, you know, you don't have to identify with just one thing. You need to identify with what you're comfortable with, not what people tell you you are based on what you look like. And so that's a huge lesson that I try to instill in my daughters and even myself. So um, that was really great. Thank you for that. Um, and then our next question, I have been obsessed over uh, Napatla. Um, like I read that and I like all week I've been thinking about it. And so my next question kind of revolves around that um, perspective. So how have you experienced Napatla? And if you could describe how you've used this in your practice. Well, Napatla is, um, so it's a Mitika word concept. Right, that Gloria uh, Saldua um, has been using, and a lot of us have adapted as well. I see Nepantla as a place of transition and transformation, and those, and it's not always necessarily in a, a comfortable place, you know, whatever, because that's a place where when you find yourself in Nepantla, which is probably most of the time um you you find yourself within those clashes of cultures but sometimes also of values um so there are things that you've been taught that you know not your life that being comfortable and then you realize that they're not uh and so that's when we think about transition uh so sometimes you know this clash can be what from Gloria and Saldua talks about uh, a susto, right? How you adult, uh, things that you, things are going kind of comfortable and then something, something happens 
and and you need to adjust and you need to reflect. So the way uh, I use Nepantla, uh, but especially pedagogically, is that most of my education career, um, I and especially when I first started teaching at Arizona State, um, I was in the smallest campus of, of ASU and the most diverse. But when I started teaching, more, the, I was teaching predominantly white students. And the, so introducing them to concepts, like uh, even talking about racism was very uncomfortable for students because many students, and even sometimes for students of color as well, because uh, they have been told, a, a lot of them have been told all their lives that the way in which that you avoid being racist is by avoiding talking about race. And here we were saying, no, you know, they, and it was a jolt, right? Or people come from all different backgrounds, can be a religious background, and suddenly you're looking at different things. And so that takes them into an Epantla stage, and they, you can be clashing all the time and, uh, and trying to convince people to come to your side, so to speak. And that's not going to work. You uh, you need to, but at the same time, you also don't want to continue to reproduce all the systems of inequality. And so, so I started to use together uh, pedagogically uh, in the classroom the concept of Nepantla and and say, you know what, it is okay to feel uncomfortable. And if you're feeling uncomfortable, there's something, I mean, it's not fun, but there is a transformation going on here. But then also started to think about, um, so the Ansaldua's concept of nos otras, that when she writes it, nos slash otras, right? That how can we, we are us and them at the same time. So rather than trying to convince everybody to be the same, right, to take this assimilationist perspective, um, to, to, to recognize that we, and, and it goes with new tribalism as well, right, that we can form, we can start to understand ourselves at both and at the same time to what divides us and what unites us. And, that, and so with that, I try to say, where are the points of convergence where we can agree and where are the points of disagreement? Now, that works when you're talking to people that are willing to do some transformation. You're not gonna have that argument with a white supremacist. Right, so you're not gonna find a point of convergence there. And we have, I mean, we deal with, right now we're dealing with white supremacy. Uh, what we were dealing with at the top level of, of, of the US government, right? And, uh, and, it, and it continues, so we're, um, and, and it is, uh, white supremacy has never gone away. In, in the United States, but it certainly has come up from the surface more. So there are, uh, so, and that kind of takes you into an apantla as well, right? Because we get those jolts. Like, how did we feel on January 6th, right? That was a huge national jolt. Or how did we survive 
those of us who were able to survive more or less uh, the, the freeze in, in February, right? When we were, uh, all our lives were in danger. Uh, those are moments in which you are, they're sustos, they're jolts, and they are, they are, affect our well-being. So, um, so the, this uh, concept of Nepantla allows us to understand the complexity of all these this ways of being and, and discern a little bit uh, who can you work with and try to get into that transformation and then how can you change the national narrative that's good that's gonna allow you to fight those very serious oppressive white supremacist anti-democratic uh ideologies that are seeping the country right because right now i feel like I, i'm like i'm in the middle of uh this uh nepantla or i kind of found like a little island that we're just gonna go okay i can breathe a little bit but i know they're there right and uh, so we're just kind of we have to be vigilant and uh, and education can help a lot with this because if we um are able to because a, a lot of we need to this is where nosotros comes right if you eventually start to be able to have a a discourse and you talk about, let's say, working class people of all racial backgrounds and say, you know what, we're all kind of affected in these ways. And it's not these people here that are make oppressing you. So if it, that's where we can think about nosotros, right? And new tribalism, it's a, not gonna happen overnight and people need to be willing to, to listen if they're, not going to then we need to go at that so that's why it has to be a larger structural change thank you for that yeah um i was just gonna say i feel like um as you said you know racism never went away but in you know especially the past events i think a lot more people are becoming aware that it never went away um, you know, me being one of them, I used to live in this bubble and I was like, oh, we're doing so much better and we're making all this change. And no, they were just getting really good at hiding it. Um, mm. But now it's coming to the surface, as you said. And I just feel like the first step in the Bama is, you know, bringing awareness. And so something that I could do is take the, that perspective and kind of show the people that I work with and start conversations. I think that's where it needs to start is a lot of people don't know that our world is still is still needing healing. Um, so I think that would be a great starting point for conversations. Um, I think I think I've made a lot of my teammates uncomfortable this year, but um, I can I can see that there's a little they're they're getting it now. So there's a little bit more knowledge, and so um, I just wish more people, like you said, they need to be willing. But I wish there were more people that we could have conversations with. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Right, I agree with Kat, you know, and um, I haven't started teaching yet, but you know, when I, I went into this program, um, you know, with the goal that like when I do start teaching, 
I will create a diverse and inclusive curriculum, right? And that's my my goal. Um, that's going to be the foundation of my curriculum and my teaching. Um, and so I know that there will be a lot of moments of nepatma, you know, in my classroom. Um, and I and I really like um, the way that you use spiritual activism in the article that we mentioned earlier. And I'm curious, you know, what that will look like, right? So um, I just wanted to know what are some ways that you bring spiritual activism into the classroom? I do it very, um, well, part of um, the way I understand spirituality and spiritual activism and that I've been kind of using, you know, even as um, working with, with faculty, the word mindfulness um, as well, right? So to me, spirituality has to do with how you understand, it's partly very much tied to epistemology, right? Uh, and uh, people who know me uh, know that I am I'm, I'm very existential. So I, I, I come from, I, I kind, of, kind of come from an existent, not existentialist like in the philosophical traditions, but in under, but kind of, but, um, but I do, the way I started to think about spirituality is um, I, I grew up Catholic and I went to Catholic schools and, uh, but my mother was not Catholic. So it was always a clash between the nuns and uh, my mom was raised Lutheran and then she went to Methodist. And, uh, and actually towards the end of her life, she was not very religious at all. Um, but, but church was always important for her. And uh, so that we were Catholic was more a pragmatic thing. Um, and the, but the, the nuns had real serious problems with Protestants. And it really kind of sometimes it seemed like reformation had just happened. Uh, so it was really, um, very, you know, that's where very uncomfortable as a child, right? That you're basically, you're being told that your mom is wrong. And so that was very uncomfortable. So I was never, so I've never been a fan of uh, organized religion. And, uh, uh, but there were a lot of things that I learned of the Catholic church. And, uh, and even though I can be, I, I don't call myself an atheist, but I certainly am agnostic. But I, at the same time, I do, from an existential point of view, I do ask like the basic questions. So what's the purpose of life? Why are we here? And I do believe that partly whatever happens afterwards that while we're here, that we need to make the world better for everybody. And I think that's where I kind of tie things together because then that notion of spirituality is tied with social justice, which is what Anzaldu is talking about. And I do, uh, uh, I think there are things that are tangible and are intangible and things that we just don't understand. So there is a realm that we might not get. And uh, so, um, so there, so understanding also what is the inter interconnectedness within uh, um, the earth, uh, what we see, what we don't see, the living, uh, you know, the the human, the non-human, uh, 
So you can see that I have a lot of influence from Ansaldu and kind of thinking about, about those things. So, uh, so what does that mean is that in the classroom, I want to encourage students to bring whatever notions of social justice they have to in in my in this word mindfulness and how do we work together with each other and we're generous with each other um, in understanding where you're coming from, what's going on in your in your life, uh, how can we be of help. Uh, when things are, we, we all have incredibly complicated lives and a lot of times we just don't know what's going on in someone's life. And we know that a lot of people um, suffer from violence in, a, in, in their lives and in ways that some people just don't understand. So, um, so I try to encourage students to when I say being generous to each other, like um, so at least you were saying, and uh, I don't know your first name, sorry. Uh, so it's, it's Catherine, sorry, this is Catherine, my teacher right. Zoom. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's right, you did tell me and I, I'm really bad with names, so I apologize with that, but so Catherine, yeah. So, you know, when you're saying you made your classmates uncomfortable, right? There are, there are ways in which people make people uncomfortable they are good because it's for transformation. Uh, but then how, how do we, as we making people uncomfortable, we also have to give room for growth and, and for people to make sense for things in the ways in which they, uh, they understand the world and that's so because if you come very hard on you should know this by now and how can you uh you know how can you not even get it that there's racism don't you watch the news right and and i really do sometimes want to say that uh like read you know watch the news right uh but uh still there has to be a generosity to get people to grow. And, and I'm not saying that should just allow people to maintain forms of inequality. And I'll give you an example. And sometimes I take my filters uh, in the classroom, and this was years ago, but I had a student who was justifying the economic benefits of slavery. And I was just like, I'm not gonna let this go. And I was like, there is like, do you get it how immoral that is? Like, do you like you can't put money before people's lives? Like, get, you know. And I was like, I'm not having filters here. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm not gonna let this happen. Like, there are moments in which you just can't uh, can allow it. Uh, and. But and then there are other moments that you kind of see like, okay, there is, there can be the people starting. To, and and in, us, in a classroom, we know very well that is, we all growing in a classroom, right? So, because uh, we have that, I learn as much from students as students hopefully learn from me and we all work with that. Uh, so, and then, um, so, even before the pandemic, I was, was a little bit weary when I would hear colleagues that would not give break. They didn't want to hear uh, what was going on in students' lives. 
And if you didn't turn in an assignment on time, then too bad, you should have known better. And if we don't, and assuming, always assuming that the student is lazy or whatever, right? And not knowing. The pandemic has brought a little bit more awareness of that, but it still took a little bit of time. And, um, and after the freeze here, I think because we all suffer it, uh, that that's sometimes we all kind of have to experience something to be a little bit more generous. But but still, you know, we do are trying to figure it out, figure out uh, what happened to students who didn't came back. Uh, we've heard from students, and and it was a combination of things with some people, either they were sick with COVID, had family members uh, sick. Remember that time there were very few people vaccinated. Um, we had to uh, forget about social distancing for a matter because the immediate was much more important. And so then how do, there's where the, to me, spiritual activism is part of that too, into trying to understand not, not assume that if somebody's not doing something, it is because they're lazy or they don't want to do it, but figure it out. And I mean, eventually there are some people that are trying to gain the system and I'm, I'm not worried about them at all. I'm more worried about as a university and as faculty to make, uh, make sure the students are fine. Uh, and if one gained the system a little bit, so be it. You know, if more students were able to be, we were able to be of assistance to students. Um, I connect a lot with uh, what you were talking about, how you're, you, you were young and you had different types of religions, like pulling, you know, one side or the other. And um, my, my dad's a pastor. And, um, and so I'm a, a science teacher and, and sometimes like, and well, the transformation, I think that Nepalna um, uh, state was actually way before when I was younger, just thinking about other religions, how are they right? And, or how are we right? And they're, they're not right. And how's the rest of the world not correct? Um, and so I consider myself not religious anymore. I consider myself more spiritual just because I do look for those, um, like the questions that you were talking about, um, those are questions I still have and still, you know, looking for the answers. Um, and I, I do consider myself uh, finding spirituality in nature and, you know, in, in other. Okay. Mm -hmm. there you, go. you cut off for a little bit. We, we didn't hear after you said that you were spiritual. We didn't hear anything oh, that, after. That. Oh, no. I was saying that I was, I, that I could find now like spirituality and or in uh, nature and and in in other forms now, not so much, not always just in in religion anymore, and so I I, I did connect in, in that area with you. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, one of our questions too is um is uh what is what what is one testimonial that you gained maybe throughout you know your university times or or uh, as teach as a teach uh, professor that um from being a Chicana feminist um in either I don't know you say you you in uh. In Arizona and then here in um is it Wisconsin and um, um I guess that's the question what's one of those testimonials you've gained 
I might, well, uh, maybe I'm thinking of a testimony, like a, how would I, if I would do a testimonial of my experiences, is that because, or, or something that. I guess maybe from a, a, a colleague, a student or something that you maybe like has transformed your, um, like how you were talking about the, the Nepal state, maybe just like that yeah. aha moment or that time mm -hmm. where. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. I, I, you know what, I think I would go to something that I'm dealing with right now. Um, to, um, well, there have been a, several moments in which I'm going to give you two examples, right? So I, I was teaching um, graduate course uh, in uh, like their introduction to social justice and human rights. That was one of my, my fields. That's one of my fields as well. And that we were having really difficult time in the classroom because that's one of the first times that I started to use nosotras. Because even though these were grad students and I do feel like they should have known better they were grad students in human rights and social justice, they, there were some students, mostly white, but some of color that took a very assimilationist colorblind perspective and didn't want to talk about race. And that was kind of get you to social justice. And then there were other students that um, they were like, how can you not even know this, right? They, uh, there was one Chicana who was uh, older. She had had, uh, she had come back to school after, having living with a, an abusive marriage that she was finally kind of trying to get out of it. She had got her undergraduate degree and then she was getting into her, studying her master's. And that, so she was one of those that had a really difficult time talking about race. So we were in my office in that, because there had been an incident in the classroom and that made her very uncomfortable. And she kept talking about uh, that we shouldn't be talking about race because that was just gonna perpetuate um, racism. But then she started to talk about a lot of experiences that she had. She had worked retail. She had been dealing with an abusive husband and all sorts of things. So at one point I pointed, you know, you're being, all of these things that you're talking about, those are experiences of racism and sexism. Don't you think they're real? And she goes, yeah. And I said, so how can you talk about them and articulate it without talking about race and gender? And it, for her, it was that a little aha moment. They said, well, I was always told not to talk about them. And I go, but that's the problem, right? Because it's not until we talk about them that we're able to name it. And then we can start giving some, some solutions. Um, so that I, that was, uh, there was another case in which um, had a gay student that uh, had a lot of problems talking about race as well. And it wasn't until again, make the connection. Uh, and he was a Latino, right? So there were intersections there. And uh, so he find, he had also a little bit of those aha moments. But 
In terms of bringing, you know, this aspect of spirituality, and one of the things I'm talking right now. So, I have a doctoral student right now who's writing a really very interesting dissertation on um, women priests, and so women who want to be ordained within the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church, of course, does not allow ordination. But they are, they do get ordained, and they do call themselves Catholic. Um, priest, even though, of course, it's not accepted by the church. So that means that they can be excommunicated and all sorts of things. And so she's using a lot of the Anzaldúa's concepts to think about Nepantla, Susto, and all that stuff. So it's a really, um, she's doing some amazing work. Uh, she passed her comps in December and her dissertation proposal at the same time that she got, she was diagnosed with cancer. And so right now it's uh, my interactions with her are more of a spiritual part. Not that I'm a spiritual guide because she has her spiritual guides, but I have, I'm more mindful to tell her, you have to deal with your health and see where this goes. But I also know that sometimes working helps. Uh, so that balance between um, advance as you want uh, and not put pressure and yet at the same, and so be very, so I have to be very, every time I talk to her, I answer an email, I try to be incredibly mindful. Uh, the, I'm, I want her to finish the dissertation, but I'll, before of that, she has to take care of her health. Uh, so that's, I think that that's where you, you have to take away the linear university thinking that you need to finish by this time and you need to do it here. And uh, so that's where, and kind of think about this dissertation more than a uh, product to get your PhD can be a healing process as well. Um, yeah, I think there will be examples that I can think about right now. Mm -hmm. Right, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I know that, um, you know, and when we're, you know, when we're in classrooms where we're unpacking racism, sexism, you know, other forms of discrimination systems of power, I think it's, it's important to like um, take time outside of the class to process everything that we're learning, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because we're basically having like paradigm shifts, you know? Um, and so certain ways that we've had of thinking are kind of like, wow, like now I'm just really trying to figure everything out, you know? And um, so I think you mentioned it's it's really important to have that balance of like work, but also personal time, you know? Um, and any type of other commitments that you may have like family, um, um, you know, any type of groups that you belong to, but it's, it's important to have that balance. Um, I, I wanted to talk about uh, this art, this one quote that I really enjoyed from your article, um, the article titled Nepanla Spiritual Activism, New Tribalism. Um, and the quote is, um, the best interests of the whole cannot be accomplished by policies and practices that are based on power and domination and serve the interests of the rich and influential. So I just wanted to see if you could kind of just um, dive into that, you know, that concept a little more, um, and you know, just to unpack it a little bit more because I, I really enjoyed um, that quote. 
Yeah, so that, of course, the, the whole, the best intention of the whole, uh, I use that as some of the, that comes from Ansaldua. Uh, and I think it's, um, can't remember if it's from Borderlands or from um, this bridge we call home or some other, but it, 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 it is, of course, you can see, you know, how Ansaldua is influential. So this is, well, that article was based on, uh, uh, this is what got me thinking because of that uh, incident that happened teaching social justice and human rights. And so, because if you look at the traditional theories in human rights are very Western based uh, and still very colonial, even though it's supposed to be human rights, right? And so that you talking about human rights and you even have to start to make an argument that all humans are humans. And that, well, what does that mean? Because all humans, of course, are humans, but we have a lot of whole differences. So I, I do feel that sometimes even in, in human rights discourses, we're not necessarily talking, what, what does a true theory and practice of human rights was gonna lead you to a socially just world. So that's where I say those relationships is where everybody's going to benefit. You know, um, so that's the benefit of the whole, right? Uh, and the whole is a very com is the whole. I mean, I'm kind of we kind of thinking about humanity, right? So, so that means that we need to take into account all the systematic inequalities that exist. So, if you break down uh, human rights, so we have to start to how do we satisfy the basic needs that we have to survive? Uh, the survival mode, uh, food, shelter, um, health, right? But then we also, there are other things that are also very important to uh, how do we respect, um, if we basically, if we say that some humans are better than others because their culture is, there are some that are more advanced, and some that are quote unquote primitive. So we still kind of having those legacies of colonialism, then that we do need to say, you're not gonna achieve human rights if you're insisting that, and usually we're talking about peoples of African, people of color, right? Indigenous people, people of African descent, those are the historically quote unquote uh, considered uh, primitive people. So how we get, uh, that, so the interest of the whole is to be able to recognize that every human being and every culture uh, has contribute contributes to knowledge production to culture and everybody is comp complex in their ways and just because we think that uh, believe me I just I do enjoy uh, having indoor plumbing and electricity and and all the all the amenities that that we have, and definitely we know how much we depend on on this. It was uh, I couldn't survive in my house here in San Antonio without electricity when it was cold. I, you know, had to get I had to get shelter someplace else because um, couldn't even. There was no way I could heat this house or eat. Right, I have everything is electric here electric stove, microwave. So there was no way, and I, yeah. So so you recognize, right, that I, there was a point that you say, well, I'm not being able to satisfy my basic needs, okay? So I'm getting with that. 
what I'm getting with, but we also know that, so in a, in a lot of the advances that we have in society have come on from various different uh, communities and cultures. So it's just not being Europeans, it's everybody has done that. So we need to start recognizing that we need to, so a human rights that is, looks at the benefit of the whole is one that's gonna recognize the legacy of colonialism and how it continues to affect us and how we need to um, decolonize uh, our ways of thinking, our ways of eating. So I think it, it relates a lot with science as well. Um, so that's where I was coming with that from to kind of rethink human rights uh, theories uh, and, and kind of move change where human rights uh, theories are coming from because uh, it is who, it is about power, right? That who was able to have the power to decide I am more advanced than you are. Uh, there were many ways we know very well that um, communities in the Americas uh, have many ways in which they were much more advanced than the colonizers. Uh, they were not primitive, uneducated, all the negative things that are said, the, the whole savage. Uh, I mean, you, you have a group that came and tried to erase and committed genocide and caused the, the other savage. Right? So that's, uh, so there, and that's an exercise of power. So, and, so that's, uh, I think, I, I, I don't know if I'm answering the whole question, if I'm missing part of the question, but that was, if I remember, that was a thinking that I was get, getting at, right? That, uh, so it's, um, it's not an assimilationist perspective. So what, what is really insidious when you're talking about um, the rights of people of color and of women is that one of the first things that we almost have to argue is that we are human. So that's the problem in and of itself, right? So how do you, so, so to recognize that the humanity in all of us with all our differences uh, in the, and, 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 and then, because when you have uh, uh, a system like such as capitalism, does not look at what is the benefit of the whole, right? It looks at what is the benefit of, the capitalist. So, and and so that's also what um, what I'm getting with that. So it's uh, I don't. You can call it socialism, whatever you want to to name it, right? But if we're gonna look at what is the benefit of, uh, of the whole, is that we we would have an economic, political, uh, social. Uh, environment in which everybody's going to be able to benefit from it. We recognize everybody's contributions. Uh, and one of the things that became very clear with the pandemic is that who, who are the people that kept us alive? Um, and, uh, and there are people, some of the most oppressed people, so farm workers. Like the ones, the, the uh, grocery work, work store workers. Uh, of course, we do have doctors and nurses, uh, but with that also, 
all the people that work in hospitals that are from the janitor to um, orderlies, et cetera, right? So, uh, so if we would look at, and we let to see like, who are the most, who is doing some of the most important jobs in our society don't get paid. Uh, the people that grow our food, so we go back to basic, the basic necessities. So the people who grow the food, they're not the ones that are benefiting, you know, and, and so we're not looking at what is what, and, and who made a ton of money out of the pandemic? Uh, the um, Amazon and Netflix and Apple and you name it, right there. Uh, and so where's the balance, right? Um, and talk about um, with that uh, teachers, right? They also are the ones that keeps us going. So and uh, and teacher salaries are very very low in relate in relation to the difficulty of the job and the level of education. Right. Yes, I also think about like. Um, during you know specifically more recently during the freeze like you know who took care of of you know myself and the ones that live here at, at my house is like the community coming together right like mm -hmm. we didn't have water at some point you know the, the pipe had froze and mm -hmm. so we went to the next door neighbor who are an, an elderly um brown couple right and they're raising their their um special needs grandson right and so they're you know also very marginalized, you know, peoples as well, and they're working class, right? And so they they shared whatever they were like, you know, there's there's a trickle of water coming out, you know, but if you when it come fill up here, we at least have something to share with you, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you know, they, you know, besides despite them having little, you know, trickles of water coming out, they still shared with us, right? So mm -hmm. the power of like communities of color to come together, working class communities when like government's not taking care of us, right? Or CPS is not taking care of us, right? So like, who? how do we take care of each other amongst community um, when we can't trust these systems that, that supposedly take care of us to take care of us, right? So uh, that became very apparent, um, you know, mm -hmm. and during the pandemic I had, um, during the pandemic when it first hit, I had my my tia coming over to drop off toilet paper, you know, mm -hmm. um, when we couldn't find any. Um, right. And it's just like, we, we find ways to, um, I think they call it like, mutual aid or you know just community right coming together to take care of each other when these systems do not right and 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 you an example that uh texas not not doing what infrastructure that they needed to do because they were more interested in profit or whatever it was uh in not being prepared for for a freeze that when they have been told and not necessarily caring. Uh, definitely, we had uh, elected uh, elected officials and previously uh, elected officials that basically saying we prefer to freeze than get help uh, or run away from the state. Uh, they're not looking for us, right? And who, um, and also how you were able to to survive because. Uh, I live on the West side, but I have a middle-class status. I have resources. So I was lucky and to be able to get a hotel room that I could afford 
uh, without water, but it had electricity. And I had water in my house, but no electricity. And, uh, but at one point I came to the house and it was 29 degrees. So as I said, I would have not been able to serve. But if I had not had the resources, I would have not survived. And there were people who didn't survive because they didn't have those, those resources. Uh, and even if they had family, you know, by the time they went to, were able to go, there were people that died because of the freeze because of uh, profit. And that's uh, it's a serious human rights violation. Right? So that's again, not looking at, so when you only look at what's in it for me here, whether it's profit or political, and you don't think about my, how my decisions may affect everybody else, you're not looking at, that's what I'm thinking about, how you look at uh, the benefit of the whole. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Um, does uh, Kat or Linda, do you have any other questions or anything to comment for Dr. Linus? Um, I don't have um, questions, but I, I do uh, appreciate uh, that you uh, joined us and um, um, and answered. The, I mean, there was a lot of uh, perspectives that you clarified, and I, I like that. Um, so thank you. Mind is blown. <laughs> thank you. Well, thanks a lot for yeah. this is a really uh, interesting, fun conversation. And uh, one of the things that being new to UTSA and uh, in the middle of a pandemic is I haven't got a chance to meet a lot of students. So this is mm -hmm. this is a lot of fun to meet students as well. So yeah. thanks a lot for inviting me. Yeah. Welcome back to this week's episode of Transformative Talk. I'm Dr. Haddad, and this is Ellie, your other co-host. To learn more about this topic, you can read the article referenced in the episode titled Nepantla Spiritual Activism, New Tribalism, Chicana Feminist Transformative Pedagogies and Social Justice Education by Dr. Alejandra Elenes. So, Ellie, tell me about how uh, empowered you felt after this interview. Um, it was a really great experience just to get to like know Dr. Elenes' work. Uh, on a whole nother level. Um, it left me feeling really empowered, um, especially, you know, where our current um, political and educational climate in Texas, we're facing a lot of pushback with even talking about these concepts or anything related to critical race theory. Um, so I feel super empowered and also that it's really relevant to um, what we're experiencing here in Texas right now as educators and, you know, curriculum builders and professors. That's right. Well, that's all for this episode, everybody. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do here, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you discovered our show. That's all for now. And I'll see you in the next episode of Transformative Talk. Bye.